Writers' Voices with Monica and Caroline. I am your host, Monica Hadley, and you only have me today, which is kind of ironic because of the subject that we're talking about, which is twins. Of course, Caroline and I aren't twins, we're mother and daughter, but um, many of us have always wished to have a twin, so we we'll, might be talking a little bit about that today. Our guest is Helena de Brace, and she is the author of How to Be Multiple, The Philosophy of Twins. Helena is an associate professor of philosophy at Wellesley College, where she researches and teaches ethics, philosophy of literature, and political theory. Her essays and humor writing have appeared all over the world. Her book, Artful Truths, the Philosophy of Memoir was published by the University of Chicago Press in 2021, and she, of course, lives in Massachusetts. Welcome to Writer's Voices, Helena. Thanks, Monica. It's lovely to be with you. <laughs> so you, of course, you know, usually I start out these interviews by asking people why they wrote, you know, why this book, why this subject. But the answer is kind of obvious for you <laughs> because you are a professor of philosophy and you are a twin. It's true that both of those things are really central to my identity. So, I, so I have to ask, why did it take so long to write this book? That's <laughs> the big question. I, really, I didn't start writing about twins until about maybe it's five years ago now, but I wrote one short essay uh, about it. It was the first time I, I tried to bring my twinhood and my job as a philosophy professor together. Um, it was just a short essay, and I realized there was so much more to say. So that was really the beginning of this longer book project. So when in that first essay, what did you say in that? Like, what was to you like the first thing you wanted to say about being a twin? One thing I wanted to do is is make the the case for the idea that twins are philosophically very rich, right? So as soon as you start thinking about twins, you almost immediately start thinking about various ethical and metaphysical questions right? about personal identity or about the nature of love, um, about free will. That's a, a common one. Uh, so I wanted in that essay to just highlight the, the many different ways that twinhood is existentially um, <laughs> remarkable. So it was it was sort of a survey of some of those questions. Um, and yeah, in the course of writing it, I realized there's no way I could discuss them all. In the course of <laughs> you, might, you might be able to ask them, but you're not going to yes. answer them. <laughs> I tried to keep that questioning spirit open in this book. I didn't I wanted to give you know, people resources to think about these questions, but I didn't want to answer them. I wanted to really open up the questions um, and retain some curiosity and mystery because a lot of it is really quite mysterious. Well, what I loved about this book, How to Be Multiple, The Philosophy of Twins, was you're combining elements of memoir um, with, you know, deep sort of philosophical, I wouldn't say meanderings exactly, but, um, you know, drawing on various philosophical traditions, what they have to say about these things. Yeah. Also, more hard science about some of the issues and popular culture. And you're weaving it all together in a way that's actually fun to read because you have also a great sense of humor. <laughs> I think my favorite passage is... Um, 
where I just I was just laughing out loud was uh, when you were working with your twin in a library. (laughs) 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 And I don't know if if you were planning to read that, but if not, maybe you can tell us that story. I was actually that was one of the pieces. Okay, so we'll wait. We'll wait till we get to the reading then, and you can hear about that. (laughs) But there were a lot of things that that really caught my attention. And um, let, let's talk a little bit about the, the pop culture aspect, you know, the twins wow. in and not just current pop culture, but throughout history. Right. Yeah. I mean, part of. Um, yeah, I, I love reading this kind of book. You know, they always say to writers, write what you want to read. Um, my favorite genre is this this mix of personal narrative memoir with uh, some theory. You know, I'm a philosophy professor, so I love a bit of theory, but also just, um, you know, general um, aspects of the culture. So popular culture, myth, you know, literature, history. Um, I love books that weave all of those things together. So I wanted to write one myself. And it's a natural thing to do with twins because twins just pop up everywhere, it turns out. <laughs> um, so you're asking about popular culture. Um, you know, there are many films, um, you know, novels, um, you know, TV series where twins make at least a, a short appearance and often a longer one. I think part of the reason for that is that twins are just a really useful um, narrative device, right? Um, they're often used to represent uh, different ways of being, different um, value choices, um, diverging paths, right? One twin does one thing, the other goes down the other road. It's a way of exploring the role of fate in human life. Uh, so they're fun. Twins are always fun to think about, but they also have this deeper layer. So they're a kind of a handy way to make whatever you're doing both like engaging and arresting and have a little more depth to it. Of course, Shakespeare used twins. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I've always laughed because people don't don't tend to notice this, but it's like every it seems like every single Shakespeare comedy that I've ever watched or read has um, mistaken identity as as part of the plot. And often cross gen cross gender, right? <laughs> but well, I, I read, yeah. while I was reading, uh, sort of working on the book, that that was a common thing, not just in Shakespeare, but in um, Elizabethan and kind of um, more broadly speaking, sort of um, eight, sort of fifteenth to eighteenth century theatre. There was an obsession with this question of authenticity and kind of sincerity, um, whether you could really trust that people were who they were or instead merely appearances. So twins, again, are very useful for highlighting that theme because you can never tell for sure which twin you're talking to. (laughs) (laughs) But of course, Shakespeare himself had twins. There was that wonderful book that Maggie Farrell recently brought out. I don't know if you read that, the novel Hamnet. Yes, I did. Right. So I think he was interested in twins, too, because he was the father of twins. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was a great book. And um, when you say, you know, you can never tell for sure. Of course, you're talking just about identical twins in that case. And there is a distinction um, in literature and and life, I guess, between what we call identical twins and non-identical twins. And um, but there's also a very marked similarity. 
too. Yeah, I think identical twins, they, they're kind of the, <laughs> they get privileged, right? People <laughs> identical twins, we sort of higher status, I'm identical twin. Um, we think of ourselves as being like the real twins, you know, but I, I try to push back on that attitude. I used to have it myself. Uh, the French call non-identical twins faux jumeaux, right? Fake twins. <laughs> but actually, I know that's that's a real burn. Um, the experience is very similar um, in many ways for what you know we used to call fraternal twins, right? That they they're born at almost the exact same time and they're raised in the same family usually, right alongside each other. They're developing in step. Uh, they have an unusual relationship. Um, and I think the relationship is the most significant part of, of twinhood for twins. Um, and this obsession with identical twins reflects a general singleton obsession with the surface similarities, not the real nature of the relationship. So I'm a bit suspicious of that now. So you're not only an identical twin, you're a mirror identical twin. What does that mean? Yeah, so... Uh, if the, the, so identical twins are born from a single fertilized egg that splits, you know, uh, along the way. Um, if it splits fairly late in the piece, what you have is a, almost, you know, the beginnings of a fully formed human with the left side and the right side. Um, mirror image twins reflect that. So I am the left side of the initial egg, right? I'm left-handed. My hair parts <laughs> on the left. I have a mole in my left leg, and my sister is the right side. It's really a trippy phenomenon. So she's right-handed, um, and her facial symmetry kind of skews right. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. And and it's proven, you know, it's proven that that's because you divided that the egg divided later. And, yeah. 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 And if it waited even longer, that's a great story in the book too about how you would kind of. Um, impress your peers as a in, in <laughs> elementary school by telling the story that if it if it waited even longer you would have been conjoined twins yes people have <laughs> nation with conjoined twins so we used to play on that um we didn't want to be conjoined but we did like the idea of almost being conjoined right <laughs> well yeah. one thing that surprised me was the statistic that Three percent of all births are twins. Yeah, I'm not. It, it's so I'm not great with statistics either. I think that the fact that I settled on um, is that three out of a thousand births result in identical twins. Um, oh, I okay, okay. Three out yeah. of a thousand in identical, but I think it's yeah. like. 30 some out of a thousand are, are yeah, twins, I think, which yeah, would be 3%. Talking about numbers, you're probably <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. On my feet, but there has been a rise in the number of uh, twins across the board for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is assisted reproductive technology, right? So um, there are a lot more non-identical twins as a result of that. It doesn't affect the identical twinning rate. It stays mm. stable at that three in a thousand births. Um, but also um, pregnant people have um, been getting older over time. Um, and once um, a, a mother reaches 35, her chance of having non-identical twins doubles. Um, you just start to hyperovulate as you age. Oh. Uh, so those two things stuck together mean that there are many, many more twins around. The, the rate of non-identical twins um, has doubled since, I think, 1980. Um, but yeah, us, you know, us identicals remain very rare. 
I, I'm trying to remember, I mean, I've only known a handful of identical twins in my life. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I've met a lot more, but I don't necessarily always, not everyone I'm, someone I meet might be an identical twin and I'd have no yeah. idea if We're they aren't together. <laughs> we can pass as singletons, uh, for sure. Um, and also later on, identical twins tend to not look so similar, right? Life happens. Uh, Mm -hmm. So when we're young, we're often very uh, almost physically indistinguishable. Um, And at this stage, my my sister and I, we look like sisters for sure, but I don't think people would generally see us as looking like twins at age 45. Really? Yeah. Wow. When you were young, did you dress alike? We didn't. My parents, so we grew up in the 1980s. Um, and that was a stage where the advice was to really be sure that you uh, treated your twins as individuals um, and that you didn't try and emphasize their similarity too much. Mm. Um, so I think our parents were wary of doing that. Uh, we would often get scent matching outfits and we would wear them, you know, for the photo that we would send back to the relative who mailed us the outfits. <laughs> photos of us in matching outfits, but um, but we didn't tend to wear them uh, on the on the in the everyday. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised. I think that would, although there there is a pair of twins here in our town of Fairfield, who. Um, are older they're probably in their 70s and they wear matching outfits all the time (laughs) I kind of love that so one of the things we get into in the book is um and they live together yeah right so there's this narrative cultural narrative that the only way to be a, a healthy functional kind of mature adult um, is to have very, very strong boundaries between yourself and other people. You know, you can have loving relationships, but really the vision is one of a self-sufficient individual who interacts with others, right? It's sort of our ideal um, in Western culture. Um, so there's some uneasiness about twins who seem to want to have a closer relationship than that. Um, there's also a sense that you should kind of grow out of twinship. You should move on from your twin and you should, you know, pair up with another adult usually of the opposite gender. So twins who are still very close and very similar in their adult lives kind of creep us out a little bit. Um, and <laughs> I to push back against that. There are so many wonderful types of relationships in the world. It's a shame to prioritize just one of the others and kind of pathologize people who do something a bit different. So I applaud twins who want to wear matching outfits. Let them do it. <laughs> now, how do you stay so connected to your twin when you've lived on different continents most of your adult life. Yeah, I moved to um, to America for graduate school from New Zealand when I was 20, 22. So it's been over 20 years now since I've lived in a different hemisphere um, from my sister. She did live in Luxembourg for 10 years. So we're a little bit closer. She's back in New Zealand now. It's interesting. I, I, I really feel that living in a, a physically different place from her has not affected our relationship at all. We are very, very close. Not all twins are, but we are. Um, we are in touch on the, you know, the phone a lot. We do try and have vacations relatively frequently together. But also, we just, yeah, it doesn't seem to matter to me. I mean, obviously, I miss her um, a lot, but our relationship hasn't been affected by it uh, at all. I wonder if if many twins make their choices about where to live and what to do with their lives to stay nearby, to, to, to maintain that connection. 
Yeah, I think that's probably true. I mean, twinhood is a diverse experience. So there are certainly many twin relationships that are not as close as mine. So I have to be careful in the book about overgeneralizing. <laughs> Particularly sweet. And, uh, <laughs> and I do want to mention that your sister illustrated the book. Yeah, it was so fun. It was a throwback. <laughs> Headed to our early collaborations, we would do lots of uh, projects together when we were little. So it was so nice to write this, have her do the illustrations. We talked about the content a lot. Twins are very good at cooperating with each other um, a lot of the time. So it was generally a very smooth collaboration. And the fact that she is an artist and you are a writer is you talk about this in the section or the essay on um binary thinking, right. which is something that I found really fascinating. And um, before we before we get deep into that, let's just kind of give an overview of sort of the broad themes of each of the essays. So there's, are there five or six? Yeah. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, there's an introductory chapter first, and then there's these five essays, which you can read independently, but they build a, a kind of portrait over time. Um, as you read the book. Uh, so I wanted each one to be on one of the central philosophical questions that twins connect to. And each one has a question as a title that's meant to refer um, to the kinds of questions that twins get asked all the time by non-twins in their everyday lives. Uh, so the first chapter is called, Which One Are You? Um, and it talks about this habit we have of binarizing or polarizing twins. So one, for instance, will be the good twin, one will be the evil twin. One's the nerd, one's the sporty one. Uh, so the chapter talks about that tendency. We do it to twins. They're a particularly vivid instance, but we also do it to humans who aren't twins. So uh, the chapter's trying to work out why it is that we do that and what might be good about it alongside the bad things. Um, so that's the first essay. The second essay is called um, How Many of You Are There? Um, and it talks about this, uh, this question of, um, the degree to which twins combine personhood. People often treat twins as somehow less than two people. Uh, so it's about the boundaries between one person and another. Again, twins are a great instance of this, um, but you can also think more broadly about the boundaries between non-twins and humans. What is it that makes us distinct individuals and can we somehow be merged? Um, essay number three is about love. Uh, uh, it's called Are You Two in Love? It talks about two contrasting images of the twin relationship. One is being kind of perfect and ideal. One is being um, kind of pathological. Uh, <laughs> next one uh, is how free are you? Talks about this question of uh, the relative role of nature and nurture um, in human life um, and how that relates to our ability to act freely. Twins are often used to investigate that question in science. Yeah, I found, I've always found that interesting where they, they'll study twins who were not raised together. How can there be that many of them? There's <laughs> 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 all these separated twins wandering around. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. why? I've, it always made me curious is how did these twins get separated and why? Yeah. I mean, there's been some cases that are really, where actually the answer is quite sinister. I don't know if um, if you've seen the documentary Three Identical Strangers that came out a no. few years ago. Um, so there were a pair of, tri well, a, a trio of triplets 
who got separated at birth and they found each other when they went to college. Two of them went to the same college and, and everyone kept mistaking them for each other. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's like the parent on. trap in real life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, they were like, oh, my gosh, I've got a long-lost twin, and it hit the papers. And then there was the third one. Uh, a third guy was like, oh, my God, they look exactly like me. Um, and they found out that they were triplets. But then they found out why, which was they'd been part of the study. So there was this really horrible collaboration between a, a, clinic, a psychologist um, who was doing a research study in an adoption agency in New York where they split up a set of triplets and some twins too. And then they studied their relative um, progress in different families. So they stuck the triplets in families of different social classes and did an experiment by visiting them and comparing their outcomes. So it's really, it's shocking. Uh, I think that case is rare, but um, it does seem Wait, to be an Wait, what about the mother? <laughs> yeah. I, did I mean, she I, even I, know what was going on? No, no, the whole thing was secret. So it, it's a really amazing documentary. It's, oh, my it's gosh. Um, there were a pair of twin uh, girls who were also in the same study and ended up writing a memoir together about the experience. Um, so, but that's the, that, that's obviously not the standard case. I think often, you know, it, it's, it's a big strain on parents to suddenly have a pair of twins or a multiple birth arrive in the family. So if there's already existing pressures financially or just in life in general, uh, they can't raise all the, the kids. So at least one of them will get adopted out. Mm. And then the fifth essay, what are you for? Yeah, so the final essay is um, about uh, the, sort of the singleton fascination with twins. So twins are often um, used, as I was just saying, in science, but also in uh, in the market, you know, as advertising tools. Um, they're used um, to sell things, also just for entertainment. People love watching things about twins. So twins are kind of put to use, commercial use, scientific use, and intellectual use. I'm using twins in this book to think about, about human life. So the chapter is, is really just question which, which kinds of uses of other people are morally troubling and which aren't. Mm. One thing that gets raised here is if you yourself participating in the use or the instrumentalization of yourself, <laughs> somehow make it okay. Um, and I draw a parallel there between the use of twins and the use of women because there are some interesting commonalities there. Right. And um, you discuss self-objectification and... Right. Is that even yeah. a thing? Because if you're doing it yourself, is it, are you really objectifying right. yourself? <laughs> yeah. So that being treating yourself as an object, you're, you're being an agent and doing that, right? You're controlling the situation. So it seems that you're no longer an object as soon as you <laughs> become a little bit it, It's a paradox. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, before we go on, let me remind our listeners that we are speaking, that this is Writer's Voices, and we are speaking with Helena DeBrace, who's the author of How to Be Multiple, The Philosophy of Twins. So the, the whole section on the binary thinking and the polarization of twins, you know, is so, goes so far beyond, obviously, just twins, because the, the, push to binary how, how do you pronounce them <laughs> binary thinking binarize binarization binarization okay <laughs> um the whole sort of impetus to do that applies to so many other things even our our 
thought about sexuality or thought about gender or thought of thinking about many things. So I found it really fascinating um, that you came, that you display a couple of um, kind of scientific or philosoph and philosophical causes for this. Yeah, right. Um, I did my, I, I did find it really interesting. Think about the way that this habit we have around twins extends to these other cases. Um, there's going to be different reasons for it in different cases, but some of the common ones, I think, are, are these ones. So one is that <laughs> it's going to sound rather obvious, but the world is a very confusing and complicated place. So we have this intellectual tendency to try and simplify just to manage, you know, the chaos around us. So, um, so uh, it's useful to divide reality into, you know, a simplistic set of categories. Um, twins, as I said before, can be quite um, unsettling, right? You have, especially in the identical case, very, very um, closely similar beings that are indistinguishable. So I think if the binary habit with twins is being kind of a panic move sometimes, right? We can't tell them apart. So what would be really handy would be if we could somehow kind of force them apart by putting both of them at either end of some spectrum or other. Um, so in my twinship, I was the introvert and my sister was the extrovert. And that was something that was established super early on. I think it does track a difference between us. I am more reserved than her, but I also think it was exaggerated uh, so that our associates could uh, keep track of us more easily. Well, you, um, you, you describe how parents unwittingly, unknowingly might yeah. notice some slight difference or some or even with the singleton, some tendency and react to that, which the child then reacts to the reaction by doing if it's yeah. a positive reaction, doing more of it and and. So it develops, even if it might not have in a different circumstance. Yeah, it's a it's a feedback loop. So yes. you know, when you're a you're an infant or a little kid, you are trying to work out who you are too. That's a natural human task. <laughs> um, and you also, you know, you're a people pleaser. You want your parents to you want to please your parents. So if they're telling you that you're say the quiet one, that's a helpful hint for you for what you might be. Um, and you can kind of amp it up and play it back to the point where it really does come to constitute your sense of who you are. Yeah. So do you think? That means that any of us could change if we don't, if, if what we became isn't something we really want to be, that we could change that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, obviously there is a way in which this early um, sorting of people into these stark camps can be really confining, right? It's a reductive way to treat us. We're all very complicated beings. So there's something alarming about the idea that you could have, kind of settled into a groove that was presented to you early <laughs> on and you get stuck there forever. Um, I think my own case is, is just one example, but is I think um, provides a little hope here. When I when I moved away from my sister to, to move to the US, um, I did have a little bit more space to kind of compare myself to other people, not just her. Um, compared to her, I'm definitely more quiet. But no one, almost no one that I meet in America thinks that I'm an introvert. I'm a, quite a bubbly, sociable person. <laughs> I'm tired. I get tired when I spend too much time socializing, but I present as being an extrovert. I, and I, I do too. Yeah. <laughs> same same I, situation. Yeah. Right. So I realized, oh, I'm not as far along that um, spectrum as I thought. So um, in my case, my self-conception has changed 
over time. Um, I think I'm more in the middle, really. Um, and I, yeah, what I wanted to do in that chapter and in the book too, I, I, the overall, I think, mood of the book is is one of expansion and hope. I think we do get stuck in various um, sort of categories. We get we get um, caught up with various assumptions about who we are and who others are. And I want to help us sort of open that up because we are these multiple sort of multiple beings. Um, there's a lot of capaciousness in each of us. So. The book is trying to encourage people to, to kind of step beyond those tendencies while also acknowledging them and in some ways valuing them too. So my granddaughter, 11 years old, when I was talking about being an introvert, she said, no, you are not an introvert, Grandma. You are <laughs> always putting yourself out there. You are not an introvert. She goes, yeah. you are an ambivert. Mm, yeah, there you go. <laughs> There's a lot of talk of this particular binary, right? These days, everyone talks yeah. about being an introvert or an extrovert. I think, yeah, one of the reasons I, I, I mentioned in the book why we do this to other people is it's also useful for ourselves. We are looking for a way to understand who we are, and sometimes these contrasts are, are useful for that. Yeah. I had never heard of ambivert before, but it yeah. is a real thing. And yeah. it is probably a better description of what I am. So one of the reasons for this binarization is to um, kind of make the world a little more simpler, easier to understand. What are some of the others? Um, I think, again, starting with my own case, which I think extends out to other um, siblings in a family, um, being able to class myself as the introvert and also as the writer. I was the writer in the twinship, right? My sister was the illustrator. Um, having that kind of zone of operations reserved for me gave me a sense of where my kind of powers and resources lay, right? So I developed some confidence and I felt validated by the fact that Julia wasn't the writer and I was the writer. Um, so I think sometimes it can give people a sense of um, what their own contribution to the universe is, right? It can make their lives them feel special and their lives feel kind of meaningful in that way. Um, so it's useful to have your own sort of division of labor so you can specialize in one thing. With twins in particular, it can be a competitive relationship. So if you identify as having the same talents um, across the board, you might end up fighting over who's winning there, right? Um, if instead you've got your own thing, you don't have to so directly face that competitive tendency. So I think that was part of it for me too. And um, more scientifically, there's the amygdala right <laughs> i found that really interesting so what is the amygdala and what does it why does would it make us have tend towards binary thinking yeah so i read this interesting um article by a peer of um psychologists who tried who, who tried to explain why it is that um that we all have this habit um, of dividing the world and people into two quite stark, unsubtle camps. Um, and they pointed to the very early evolutionary pressures that we were under as the species was developing, right? So we have these almond-shaped sort of clusters at the front of our brain. They're called the amygdala. I don't really know how to pronounce it either. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're sort of the, the parts of your brain that respond to some sort of threat in the environment, right? So they're kind of, um, they, they act very quickly um, to categorize what's in front of you as either kind of safe or dangerous, right? So there's an instant kind of emotional reaction 
generated by that part of the brain. And then the cerebral cortex, you know, which does all the organizing and thinking is more subtle, comes in afterwards and pins down some extra details. But there's this initial sorting of your experience into um, bad and good. Um, so, uh, you know, it's natural to think that if we do it in, as a sort of bad versus good binary, we might also import that tendency into other binaries too when approaching the world. And I also found it really fascinating where you're um, these books that you bring into here on friendship and um, the constitution of selves. Mm -hmm. Do you want to maybe give a little brief overview of how they impact your thinking on this? Yeah, sure. So once you've recognized um, this phenomenon we're talking about, this habit of seeing yourself as one half of a, a binary, um, you can start feeling a little existentially queasy. <laughs> well, so I've seen all these reasons why I might do this, but none of them seem to be grounded in actual reality. They seem a bit random. I'm comparing myself to one other person out of the whole of humanity. Um, what a great way to pin down my identity. So you can start wondering in this deeply philosophical way about what the self really is. Is it possible to have an authentic self if yourself is so affected by um, comparisons within relationships to other people. Um, so what I do at the end of that essay is talk about the really important role of others in formulating anyone's sense of self, right? We're social beings. Um, so there's this beautiful book by Alexander Namas called On Friendship. Uh, where he talks about the way that we all co-create each other. We come into the world with a bunch of materials that are given to us, biological materials, experiences. We're kind of just a massive features initially. Uh, we're not really a person, a real self, until we select from that material and kind of sculpt a human being, right, a person out of that material. And other people are really crucial when we're doing that. Close relationships, close camp family members, close friends can help us narrow in on who it is that we want to be. So, I, yeah, I use that book to to kind of um, I see it as sort of ease the anxiety you might have about feeling that yourself is being formed by others. That's actually a beautiful thing when you think about it. It's not something to be afraid of. Yeah, and it continues happening right. throughout life. Yeah. It's not like you're you're not fixed forever. Yeah, so he yeah. says the self is always unfinished business. There's always opportunity to change at a fundamental level based on who it is that you run into. You're listening to Writer's Voices. Our guest today is Elena DeBrace, author of How to Be Multiple, The Philosophy of Twins. Helena, why don't you read a little bit from the book for us? Sure. Um, I thought what I'd do is read um, a couple of the introductory parts of uh, well, two chapters. I tend to start in the book with an anecdote about me and my sister and then open that out to uh, bigger questions about the subject. So I'll start with the, the first one, which one are you, uh, to get a sense of uh, this sort of obsession with binaries that we have. When my identical twin came to visit me in Boston recently, I took her to my favorite cafe for a coffee and a waffle. As we settled into our drinks, I glanced at the barista, a lavishly tattooed, heteroflexible 27-year-old with an unsympathetic landlord, a crazed ex-girlfriend, and a complicated relationship to Orthodox Judaism. That guy has a pet rabbit, I whispered. Julia looked up instantly and beamed. I hear you have a rabbit, she shouted. <laughs> 
I've spent many hours writing in this cafe over the years and have picked up these biographical tidbits in the ever. But I haven't spoken to this barista for longer than it takes to say a latte and a waffle, thanks. One season or so, if I'm pre-caffeinated and feeling wild, I'll add, crazy weather we're having, huh? Then swiftly retreat, made slightly breathless by my own extravagance. The barista was enveloped in a cloud of steam from the espresso machine. He peered out of it uncertainly. Yes, he said. What's its name? Julie asked brightly. Bertha, the barista answered. Wait a second. Then the barista was at our table, walking Julia through Bertha's Instagram page and discussing the skidding issues large bunnies face on hardwood floors. <laughs> I left home at 17 and have lived alone ever since, said Bertha's dad. Bertha is the first time I've ever had to look after anyone other than myself. It's taught me to be more responsible, you know, even in a financial sense. Julia nodded. I totally get that, she said, leaning in. Oh, look at her fluffy paws. Bertha, you little rascal, you. <laughs> when people ask how my twin and I differ, this is the kind of example I offer. For as long as I can remember, I've known that Julia is the extrovert and I'm the introvert, though I wouldn't have put it in those terms when we were kids. Back then, I'd have described myself as quiet or happy by myself or hard to get to know, and Julia as the opposite. It's part of the family mythology that this contrast was apparent from day one as we lay in our incubators at St. Helens Hospital in Auckland, New Zealand, across a golf course from what's now called the Twin Coast Discovery Highway. We'd been expected around Christmas, but like many twins, arrived a month early, weighing just a few pounds each. When our parents visited us in the ICU, tense with excitement and anxiety about their tiny, fragile creations, they found me wrapped contentedly in my swaddling cloth, calmly observing my environs like a philosophical burrito. Julia had worked her way out of her confines and was energetically smearing her shit onto the perspex walls, making eyes at the nurses and crowing with delight. Hi, everyone, our mother reports her non-verbally beaming. Let's get this party started. <laughs> a lot of traffic has moved down the Twin Coast Discovery Highway since Julia and I were born, but this basic contrast hasn't hugely shifted. While I flee from committees, Julia establishes them for fun and asks everyone on them out for coffee. Though I'm no recluse, I can serve my social energies for a select few, and I like to keep my inner life on, you know, the inside, where it belongs. So that's the beginning of that chapter, and then <laughs> we can about this question. Okay, be before you go on to the next section, why is it called the Twin Coast Discovery Highway? Yeah, I, I just find that so cute. I, I went back there three years ago to this hospital just to see where we were born. I'd never been there. And then I saw the sign. Basically, it diverges. It goes up both coasts of the Upper North Island. Oh, Island. okay. So it's not named after you. No, but it might as well be. One of those things when as a memorist, you're like, this is a gift from God. Yeah. <laughs> it's a beautiful coast. So I recommend it for a road trip. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that chapter. I thought I'd just read the beginning of another chapter. It's the one called How Many of You Are There? So the other one about personal identity. Julia and I were working at a library a couple of years ago on projects with tight deadlines when I heard myself say distractedly, I'm going to the restroom. Do you want me to go for you too? Julia's concentration glazed eyes lifted from her laptop, quivered briefly, 
then settled into an expression of derision. Oh, wow, I said, blinking. What the? I think I will empty my own bladder, thank you, Julia suggested. <laughs> Fine, I replied, collecting myself. You do you. As I headed to the toilet, I could hear Julia sniggering behind me. I was amused too, but also unsettled. We'd spent practically all our time together over the past month during my annual visit to New Zealand, and this was a vivid sign that I'd lost significant grip on where I ended and she began. I try to ward off a creeping sense of interpersonal merger whenever I spend more than five consecutive days with Julia, but clearly the ramparts had collapsed once again, and my resulting assumption that we somehow shared a urinary system suggested my department be wrenching. I was also annoyed at myself for a more intellectual reason. Some rogue part of me had apparently adopted a view about the metaphysics of twinhood that I've spent much of my life resisting. Singletons have a habit of implying that twins aren't fully distinct people, but rather somehow a single person spread over two bodies. To cite a random set of examples, Antonio asks of Sebastian and Viola in Twelfth Night, how have you made division of yourself? An apple cleft in two is not more twin than these two creatures. The Nuer people of South Sudan don't hold a ceremony when one twin dies because they believe the surviving twin will continue the life of its sibling. The twin protagonists of Michel Tournier's novel, Gemini, are collectively referred to by a single name, Jean-Paul. And the chief surgeon of the Hôpital Bichard in Paris explicitly announced in 1926 as a matter of medical fact that single egg twins are two copies of the same person, not genuinely individual beings. If asked directly, most people would deny that they consider twins a metaphysical unit, but their behavior often suggests they're inclined in that direction. Especially as children, we twins are given a single present to share, are referred to as the twins instead of by our individual names, and are treated as interchangeable in friend groups or by teachers. Keeping track of who we are doesn't seem super important because we're assumed to sub for each other in most social roles. And people get an evident satisfaction out of grouping us together. When I post photos of me with Julia on my trips back home, they blow up with likes and seconds. Our friends are happy, we're having fun, sure, but it's also as if our geographical reunion has mended a puzzling tear in the fabric of the universe and everyone feels better now. So what I do in the remainder of that chapter <laughs> is talk about, you know, my discomfort with that idea, especially growing up, and then my more recent coming round to it. Uh, so I do think there are some ways that twins can, if not be a single person, sort of function as a single person. Uh, so I go through some of those. Um, I, I do think that something true um, is happening there. And also it's something that extends beyond twins to other close couples. Right. And of course, in, in, you know, in Eastern philosophy, there is, and also in kind of, um, what would you say, metaphysics and so forth, this idea that we aren't separate at all. None of us are. Right. And, yeah. you know, so twins kind of are kind of an example of that in a way. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Um, 
you know, I, I think there's this notion that we're all fundamentally at a metaphysical um, level, discrete beings with sharp emotional and physical and mental boundaries between each other is a relatively recent view in the history of humanity and a local view, right? It, 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 it rose in the West. Um, at some point, it's sort of a confluence of, of the Industrial Revolution, the Romantic Movement, Protestantism, a whole bunch of forces that happened uh, a couple of hundred years ago in Europe. Um, we're very attached to that notion. Um, but the idea that instead human beings are pervasively interconnected and dependent on each other um, and that this individualistic model is not very healthy was the standard view until that development. Uh, so twins can be seen as a kind of throwback to that view and a vivid instance of, of this alternative picture of personhood. When you sat down to write this book, did you have the kind of the structure of it already in mind or did that come as you were writing? Uh, yeah, I didn't have the structure. I played with a few structures. Um, what I'm doing in the book, as we were discussing earlier, is merging personal narrative with theory and other, um, you know, other fields of study. Um, so I started by taking a very large amount of notes on, on things, hundreds of pages of notes. So I had this massive material. I was also writing uh, the more memoiristic pieces on the side. And the big question from the beginning was how to merge that in a way that didn't feel disconnected. Um, partly it's a matter of the content being different, but also the tone, you know, as a professor, you're always, there's always this risk you're going to come across as overly dry or didactic, like you're teaching someone. I didn't want that voice in there. So it took a long time to work out how, what kind of voice I wanted to use and also um, how to arrange the material into a manageable form. So it, it took a long time. It was definitely not there at the beginning. There were certain moments where, sort of aha moments, where I suddenly thought, oh, this is the way to do it. There were several of those along the way, but it took a while. Had any of the essays in the book, or maybe in a different form, been published previously? No, there's some uh, sort of a few lines or there's a paragraph or two here and there that came out of that initial essay that I wrote um, a couple of years before starting the book, but um, the rest of it is, is new. And... As you were writing, did you get feedback from your twin? Yes, I did. She was wonderful from the beginning. She was very excited about the project. She's usually my first reader, so I'll send it to her. She's very good at saying, you're sounding like a philosophy professor now. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and also just saying straight up that, you know, this is boring. We don't need this. So very handy. But she also, her re she's a professor too, um, so that's very twinny. We're both, we have the same job. We're both professors. She's a sociolinguist, so it's a different field. But it was very handy talking to her about the content because her research area is all about how we talk about social minorities. And twins, they're not an oppressed social minority, but they are a minority, right? They're a small For sure. uh, number yeah, in the human population. So she had some great ideas about how to think about the way we um, um, what were the parallels between the ways that twins get represented and the ways that um, other human minorities are represented? So that had a huge effect on the, the themes of the book in the end. What are some of the um, like ways that, that that you wrote about that or, you know, some yeah. of the things that you said about that? Yeah, well, um, 
in the initial sort of introductory uh, chapter or essay, um, I talk about this idea that twins are that they're freaks. They're not freaks. It's not meant to be pejorative, right? Um, one one definition of freak is just anomalous or odd or unusual, um, and that's certainly the case uh, for twins. We're a, a gestational exception, right? <laughs> um, and twins would appear in nineteenth uh, and early twentieth century freak shows, usually the conjoined kind, but sometimes just unconjoined twins, right, in matching outfits. Um, so twins have always been seen as somewhat freakish. Um, and Julia kind of helped me to think about this more generally. You know, often people who are freakish, who are odd, who are an exception to the norm, um, can tell us a lot about what we think the norm is, right? The, the, the people on the margins can illuminate the center, right? Or idea of the center. Um, so when you think, what is it that, that freaks, what makes freaks so fascinating? Often, um, it's, they depart from what we think of as being normal. I think that um, was one of the other things that you said about the like the reasons that we binarize. Right. <laughs> Which seems like such an odd word to me. But anyway. <laughs> it's a bit of an ugly word. I couldn't think of a better one. <laughs> is, um, is that yeah. you can't really know what something is unless you know what it isn't. Yes, exactly. So, um, so any kind of freak. Um, and here we're talking about, um, you know, gender minorities, you know, non, you know, people of color in a majority white society, disabled people as opposed to able-bodied people. Um, you know, all of these other types of groups too. Um, they're often used sort of as an example of what not to be, right? If you're in the mainstream. Right. Um, and you do actually, you get into the, um, issue of people with non or differently abled um, yeah. bodies quite a bit because you do have some personal experience with that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the, we were talking earlier about how I structured the book, one of the kind of aha moments I had was on a plane where I suddenly just realized that a lot of what I was talking about in these essays um, reflected other minority identity groups that both I and my sister fall into. So we were talking earlier about of the way that the objectification of twins lines up with the objectification of women. Mm -hmm. um, there's also a chapter in the book about love. Um, my sister and I are both queer um, and the ways that we talk about same gender couples are also similar in some ways, not always to the ways that we talk about twin relationships. So that was another whole chapter that seemed to line up with that identity. And then the second chapter lines up with our identity as people with a disability. So my sister and I have a um, unusual medical condition that makes our skeletons more fragile than average. So we had a lot of fractures growing up. Um, so I use that experience to talk about this question of what is truly essential to you? Is it your mind or your body? Um, is it possible for um, for your yourself to be somehow separate from your body and located elsewhere. So things get very metaphysical in that chapter, but in ways that felt connected to my experience of being a person with a disability. And then you get you don't get into this in here, but when you're saying this, if if you really if you if you are your mind and you can upload your mind to a computer, do you will you live forever? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's part of the appeal of twinhood for non-twins. You know, this sense that you know, if you do somehow share a self with another human being, 
then your own life doesn't end when you die. It may end when your twin dies, right? But you've right. got a sort of extension, if you like. <laughs> <laughs> or at least the possibility, you know, <laughs> unless your twin goes first. <laughs> yeah, and in some cultures, I mean, I, that, that was the thought that, yeah, when one twin dies, it's not really as if that twin has died. They're living on. There's something, you know, quite beautiful about that as a metaphor. Um but I think there's also, there may be something to it, sort of not just as a metaphor, but this idea that you, we, we tend to think that people are kind of enclosed in their own body, right? They're wrapped up solo in this, you know, envelope of skin that we all have. Um, but when you think about it, it's not obvious that that's true. So um, Right, because like yeah. when you ask your students, you, you, you mentioned that, um, you know, people today are kind of really raised to be in their body or you right. know, there's a lot of focus on the body and yeah. yet when you ask them if your mind were transferred into a different body would you still be you yeah and they almost everybody yes. says yes yeah. yeah yeah um so yeah there's this tendency in western culture again so starting with the ancient greeks um of identifying the true self with the 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 mind, right, uh, with reason, with sort of these these um, disembodied egos or souls, you know, that happen to live inside a body, right? The body is not essential. And we've flipped now culturally to want to emphasize much more the, the essential role of the body in yourself. Um, but there's still vestiges of that earlier view. Um, people tend to think that if some in some magical way they could be transplanted elsewhere, they would still be themselves. So it's an ongoing debate in philosophy, and it seemed to me relevant to twins, partly because this assumption we have that bodies line up one-to-one -one, um, with persons doesn't fit the case of conjoined twins, right? In that case, you have these two minds, two independent personalities that share a body. So my thought was, well, if two people could be in one body, is it possible for one person to be spread over two? So that was the impetus for that. <laughs> and of course, we've, throughout history literature, there's always been these tales of possession too, which is oh. some another spirit possessing this body. I mean, that goes back to the Bible. There were, you know, right. stories of possession. Yeah, and it's a horrifying thought for many people in the sense that the boundaries of your body could be somehow invaded, violated in that way. So part of, I think, what makes twins creepy, we're often presented as being creepy in horror stories. Um, I think it's a reaction to this anxiety about, um, about the boundaries of the body being um, less you know, stable than we might think. So let's, let's, I'm going to ask you a little bit about your writing process. So are you, do you like do the research first and then write, or are you researching, you know, something comes up, you start writing, it takes you somewhere you maybe hadn't thought of before, and then you have to go research it. Yeah, usually when I have um, the idea that I want to write about some subject, I let it sit for a little while, I have, you know, a kind of a note, on a, a memo on my phone, and I'll start amassing thoughts about it as I go about my daily life. So, you know, there'll be a note that says twins, it must be in my history somewhere. And I'll just start as I'm kind of moving around the world, just noting down, you know, thoughts that I have. Um, usually a mix of um, theories, so kind of philosophical questions that are related, but also random memories I have about my own um, kind of personal experience. And, and when do you that do this builds, as vocal recording or do you write it? No, yeah, 
I just pipe it. My you sister loves it. voice memos, but I'm more of a yeah. Yeah, I I okay. I keep thinking voice memos would be a great way to to do this, but <laughs> I love the written word. What can I say? Yeah. Um, I mean, I get to a point where I, I get this a sort of a critical mass develops, and suddenly it, it really it's a funny process. Suddenly, I just have the sense, okay, I'm ready to start, and it might be months down the track. Um, and when I have that, I often write very quickly. So the first draft comes out very quickly for me if it's a shorter piece. Um, even with these longer, both of my book projects, um, I tend to think of them as essay collections. I think it's easier to write them. So I see them as um, distinct parts. Um, so I'll write you know, a full chapter or a full essay relatively quickly. And then of course, it's a long process of revision after that. And do you revise that chapter before you go on to writing the next one? Uh, yeah, I do tend to like to try and wrap something up first. In this case, when you're writing a book, there's, again, I said I made hundreds of pages of notes. So I, I wasn't working solely on one at a time, but I do tend to like to kind of at least finish a rough draft of something. And well. just real quickly, tell us what your other book was. Um, so uh, a couple of years ago, I published a book called Artful Truths, The Philosophy of Memoir, um, which is uh, discussing a bunch of different ethical and uh, conceptual questions about the writing of a memoir. Uh, so questions about the ethics of writing about other people, real people. Um, questions, again, to do with the self. It's one of my preoccupations at this point. Right? <laughs> If, if a memoir is supposed to be an accurate or a kind of truthful, genuine accounting of the the self's past, right? But if the self is this very unstable, fragile thing, um, does that mean that memoir is somehow a fake genre? Right? So there are <laughs> questions about that, questions about whether or not uh, memoirs have an obligation to tell the truth to their readers and what that, that truth-telling obligation is founded on. And then questions about um, why someone might do this. It's a kind of risky and time-consuming, exhausting task to write about your life. So what is it that's valuable mm. about personal narrative? So I did sort of the theory of, and this is really my first, well, it's my first published uh, book-length memoiristic project. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have written another memoir that I'm hoping to kind of get out next. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm not done with it, but it was it was fun to think about it theoretically first and then do it. I think I helped myself out a little bit that way. Well, Helene, I want to thank you so much for being with us today on Writer's Voices. And if um, you're tuning in and missed it earlier, the title of the book is How to Be Multiple, The Philosophy of Twins. And we always close with a quote, and I found a quote from Josh Billings, who was a 19th century humorist similar to Mark Twain, and he said, there are two things in life for which we are never truly prepared, twins. <laughs> I've not heard that. I like that. Wow. Not often someone comes up with a twin reference I haven't come across Monica. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. And it, was, it was a pleasure. And I really found this book fascinating. Thanks so much. It's really <laughs> lovely to talk with you. <laughs> See you all next week on Writer's Voices.